Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I'm Eric Siegel. Um, we are recording this at one o'clock on Wednesday, uh, on January 20th. And President Biden has just been sworn into office. Uh, and I just have to say in a personal note, I've been doing this podcast for a long time, about you know, eight months now. Um, I'm not going to hide it. To me, this is a happy day. And um, I'm looking forward from here. And it's an especially happy day for me because I finally get to talk to someone in person who I've never met, but who I've certainly um, associated with on social media and other places, but who I really respect, and I'm so glad is, is here. And that's uh, Keith Whittington, who is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics uh, at Princeton. He is not a law professor, um, but he can be a law professor. Um, he has written too many books, too many articles, too many essays to go, to go through. He is an expert on originalism, on impeachment, on free speech, and I would say overall judicial politics. And of course, judicial politics is is my great interest, so I'm just so happy that that Keith is here. His uh, essays and op-eds have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and he is a blogger for the Volok Conspiracy. Keith, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we're going to do this podcast, I think, in two kind of segments. First, we're going to talk current events. Uh, and then we are certainly going to talk about originalism because uh, you kind of wrote the book on new originalism. And, and I, everyone knows I'm a critic of new originalism. Sure. So I'm really, really happy uh, to do that. But first, so do you th- I assume, is it a foregone conclusion, do you think, that the Senate is going to have a conviction trial on impeachment for Donald Trump? Uh, it certainly looks like it. Um, uh, I, I think it's imaginable that the uh, Democrats might decide that it's too much of a distraction and they'd rather not uh, pursue it. Um, uh, but that doesn't seem to be their current instinct. Um, instead, they are talking, uh, increasingly seem to be talking not just about the possibility of delaying the trial by several months, which at one point uh, seemed to be in the air, um, but instead trying to multitask um, and do impeachment part of the time uh, in the Senate. Uh, and then also have the Senate do uh, regular legislative business uh, during other parts of the day. Uh, certainly possible for the Senate uh, to, to do that. Um, but it is this awkward moment of having uh, passed uh, an impeachment of a uh, former president uh, hanging over um, the launch of a new uh, presidency. That's that's inevitably uh, going to suck up an awful lot of uh, the airtime and energy um, that otherwise would have been very much focused on the Biden administration. If you, I, you are, I don't know what your politics are, but if you were a Democrat leader in the Senate or the House um, or if you were President Biden, do you think they should go forward with an impeachment trial? I think it makes sense to go forward with an impeachment trial. Um, uh I think there are multiple things you're trying to accomplish with an impeachment uh, generally um, and a presidential impeachment, I think, uh, in in particular. Um, obviously, one thing that's usually front and center is the possibility of removing the officer. That's not at stake anymore uh, for Trump. Uh, but I don't think that makes the impeachment irrelevant. Um, an impeachment is still an opportunity to try to expose what happened um, and try to set the record straight um, as much as possible. Undoubtedly, there'll be hearings and commissions also trying to do that. Um, but I think the impeachment trial can be a useful venue for trying to do that. Um, it's an opportunity to condemn a particular individual for the actions they've committed. And I think in this context, they may well be very important um, to do that um, and to get uh, members of Congress on the record um, of doing that and try to establish uh, some expectations in the future. It's important, I think, to send a signal uh, to future government officials about how intolerable um, Congress thinks this kind of behavior 
um, is. And of course, there's still the opportunity of disqualifying uh, Trump from future office. And um, I don't know how significant of a motivation that is or ought to be um, uh, for the Senate. Um, but there is an important symbolic aspect, I think, to the impeachment um, even now, and I think it's probably worth uh, pursuing, uh, despite the downsides of it occupying attention and energy. So there are some people out there uh, who you and I respect, I think, Bruce Ackerman of Yale and a few others, who have suggested that it is not, it's, it's not illegal, that, that, that one cannot be impeached once, once one leaves office. Uh, I don't right. agree with that. You don't agree with that. Why don't you tell um, who's ever listening why that's wrong? Yeah, I think there's a variety of arguments as to why that's wrong. There's obviously the intuitive position, right? Because we emphasize so much that impeachments are about removing an officer. Um, the intuitive position then is obviously uh, then what we ought to be focusing on are incumbent uh, government officials. That's mostly what we have focused on throughout American history. Um, and so it's very natural for people to uh, think in those terms. Um, and really, the first time I even uh, came across and started thinking about the possibility of impeachment of former officials, I was initially very skeptical of it uh, for the kind of normal reasons everybody else would be until I started looking at it more closely and really trying to think it through. Um, and then really came to the conclusion that I think that it's perfectly valid. Um, I think there are potentially two separate issues worth separating to some degree, which is um, uh, can the House impeach a former official? Um, that's not what's at stake here. Uh, Trump has already been impeached. Um, and so, of course, we have this awkwardness that we tend to talk about impeachment as both as being the thing that the House does uh, when they level allegations, but also we talk about the entire process um, as being an impeachment. Uh, but what's really at stake for Trump right. now is, is can you have an impeachment trial um, of an existing set of impeachment charges um, of a former uh, president, or does the Senate lose jurisdiction um, of that trial um, as a consequence of the officer, in this case, having his term expired, but in other cases, an officer resigning, uh, for example, which we've had over the course of American history. Um, just on a pure textual basis, there's nothing in the constitutional text that suggests that that's necessarily the case. Um, the Constitution tells us what happens to incumbent officials when they're convicted, uh, which is they're automatically removed, and then they may also uh, have the further punishment imposed to being disqualified. Um, but the Constitution doesn't specify um, uh, that uh, you can only impeach uh, incumbent um, officials. Um, and it says the Senate has the authority to try all impeachments. Um, there's no question that the House impeachment was a valid impeachment under even the narrowest conceptions um, of what that means, in which case it seems quite logical to think then the Senate has the power to try that impeachment um, uh, that's now been lodged and, and put in their um, uh, court. Um, but in addition, if we think about sort of the core of the impeachment power as is textually granted to Congress, both the House and the Senate, um, what's given to the House is the power, is the sole power to impeach. And so then the question is, well, what did the framers have in mind when they said you have the power to impeach? What is that power they're handing off? Um, and it can, might it include uh, the ability to impeach former officials? Um, and in that context, it's striking that both in the British history and in American state history prior to the adoption of the Constitution in 1787, um, uh, impeaching former officers uh, was not only well known, um, but commonplace. Um, the two impeachments that occurred in the English parliament um, in the century prior uh, <laughs> to the drafting of the US Constitution, both involved former officials. Um, and they referenced uh, that, those impeachments in the context of drafting convention. So for them, it would have been obvious that, of course, uh, you have the power to impeach former officials because that's, in fact, what Parliament does uh, most of the time. Likewise, the state constitutions explicitly allowed um, impeachment of former officials. Um, and that was part and parcel of how they understood the impeachment power more generally. 
Um, and of course, we, like I said, we've had some experience with trying to do this um, as well, uh, most notably uh, in the case of Secretary of War William Biltknapp during the um, uh, Grant administration. Uh, he was impeached by the House and then he resigned. Um, and then the Senate went to trial. And of course, he made the motion, his attorneys made the motion that the Senate didn't have jurisdiction because he was a former officer. Um, and the Senate, um, uh, by majority vote, um, set aside that motion and proceeded to trial. Belknap was not um, convicted. Um, it's very hard to get the two-thirds vote, and these kinds of doubts can affect that. They affected it uh, in his case as well. I expect they will affect it in Trump's case. Um, I really think in Trump's context, what we'll see is uh, the motion to dismiss will be defeated, um, uh, but it will be very hard to convict um, the president. It's hard to convict the president regardless, um, but I think this, this adds an additional wrinkle that uh, many Republican senators will want to latch hold of um, as a reason not to convict. So, so I agree with everything you just said, um, even though a lot of it was about the 18th century or 17th century. I still agree with it. Um, I want to take a slight detour. Prudential reason. There are good prudential reasons for thinking we ought to be able to impeach former presidents, too, uh, and other former officials. But uh, and we can talk about those, too. But yeah. I, I do think there's other rationales besides just uh, the one that they're familiar with. But it is striking um, that just from a pure textualist, originalist perspective, um, I think that the case here is actually pretty straightforward. I actually think from an originalist, textualist, and we'll call it for sake of argument, living constitutionalist or pragmatic perspective. Yeah. We'll get into that later. Uh, I think yeah. I think it's an easy case. So I yeah. want to take a slight detour for a minute. Sure. So Bruce, for, for the listeners who don't know, you know, and many won't, Bruce Ackerman is a uh, extraordinarily famous constitutional law professor at Yale. Uh, he, he wrote a book about constitutional moments that did, within legal ac- academia, change a lot of debate, still does, about constitutional law. He's an important figure. I know him a little bit. He's a thoughtful man. Yet he writes this op-ed in the Washington Post, uh, not about this issue directly, about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment right. and how uh, Trump engaged in insurrection, and we should use that. Um, I don't want to get into that yet. Here's my question. I do wonder if the desire to be, and, and, and you know, Bruce Ackerman is, is as famous as he's ever going to be, and he's a famous guy. Um, yet he so quickly concluded that it would be illegal to um, have a trial in the Senate after Trump leads office. Um, and, and you read that op-ed and you think, well, he just wants to make all he can of Section 3 of the 14th, and which, by the way, I agree with on the merits. But leaving that aside. I think social media has done this, or op-eds. I mean, it used to be writing an op-ed in the New York Times, and without social media, only people who got the New York Times to them would read it. Now you write an op-ed in the Washington Post, New York Times, and, you know, you know it's amazing the reach. I have, a, I have an intuition that it's kind of watered down the scholarly effort mm. of a lot of people, including maybe myself, <laughs> maybe you, maybe others. I don't know. Um but I'm trying to find a reason why Bruce Ackerman would take such a position that is clearly at odds with, with the text, the history of the Constitution. Um, do you have a theory about that inter- that relationship? Well, I'm very reluctant to think that uh, uh, that, that problem is true of Bruce. Uh, he's a very careful scholar, yeah. tends to not move very quickly, right. uh, takes his time to develop these right. ideas. Um, and he's particularly concerned with this history of the 14th Amendment and the Reconstruction period um, and its significance, um, and did a fair amount of work on thinking about impeachments, in particular in the context of the Clinton impeachment. So it's not a, uh, a topic that's unfamiliar uh, to him more, more generally. 
Um, I don't know the full uh, logic of his argument as to why he thinks it's problematic uh, to pursue um, President Trump through the impeachment process and why he necessarily would prefer um, uh, the I'm sorry to interrupt, but it wasn't that he said it was problematic. That would have been fair. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah, said yeah. it can't be done. And and it's it's hard to imagine yeah. Bruce being a careful scholar that he is writing right, right, a right. law review article in that way. Like he wouldn't do that. He, he, no, well, that's true. Of course, that's partially. So so I think there is a social media issue. And I, and I actually do want to get back to that because I yeah. think it's important about thinking about scholarship more generally and how yeah. we do these things in public. Um, but there's also an op-ed writing uh, feature of this, which is uh, which is uh, you know not trivial. Um, so I've written a few op-eds over time. I try to. Um, uh, talk about things I actually have some expertise in in public when when the opportunities present themselves. Uh, and unfortunately, impeachment uh, has created some of those opportunities, yes. given that it's one of the things I spend a lot of time studying. Um, but it's the nature of op-ed writing is that you are writing for a broad audience. Uh, you're trying to make bold and clear points. You have very little space uh, to do it in. Um, editors really don't like qualifications. And so all the little wrinkles that you want to put in as an academic to qualify, to clarify, to uh, cabin uh, what you're saying, uh, the force of that kind of publication just drives that stuff out. And so uh, there's always, I think, some tension then between uh, even as good scholars, how we can communicate uh, to the public through the kind of venues that are available to us, uh, whether it's in the small number of characters on Twitter or th whether it's through even 900 words in an op-ed um, and the kind of thing you'd want to do in your scholarship. I think it's always a little bit unfair to judge people by their op-eds as opposed to their scholarship because they're just different formats and they have different demands on what you can reasonably do. I do think, in, I do think we are in not only a social media age that's significant for affecting scholarship and scholarly discourse, but um, uh, but the polarized nature of our time probably contributes to this as well. But but one feature of of social media, in particular, in this regard, um, and and here I want to use it very broadly to include the blogosphere, for example, that really predated uh, social media as such. Um, is that it does allow an awful lot of people to speak directly to a larger audience uh, without gatekeepers, um, and so. Uh, uh, you don't have to sell it to the Washington Post and convince them <laughs> that this is worth publishing and this is the best thing to publish relative to the hundreds of other things that they're being sure. attributed to them sure. that they might want to publish. You don't have to work with their editors and sort of manage their gatekeeping process. Right. You can just post it right, right <laughs> away. And right. so there's an immediacy to it. Um, uh, there's an audience that that allows you. Um, but it also, I think, um, uh, both allows and incentivizes uh, hot takes in a way that is uh, in real conflict uh, with uh, the normal scholarly process. Um, and it's tr and our media sort of reinforces that, right? I mean, that the kind of people that the media wants to pull in to talk about even things like impeachments are not necessarily people with any actual expertise on these things. Um, and so the choices that get made and the kinds of people who get attention, uh, both in the social media arena and, and even in the established uh, uh, mainstream media, tra traditional media, um, uh, is, is not necessarily uh, conducive to the kind of slow, careful thought that academics sure. hopefully uh, sure. prefer. Right. Um, and also are, are, uh, put a lot more emphasis and give a lot more rewards um, to uh, extreme, sometimes counterintuitive, um, often uh, fantastical uh, takes, um, bec because that's what people want to hear. Um, 
So one thing I've been struck by over the course of the Trump years in general, and I don't know to what degree this is entirely new or if I'm just being exposed to it more, is the extent to which um, uh, there's a lot of wish casting that goes on in uh, legal commentary around these things where uh, we think it would be really nice if, if the law or the constitution worked in a particular way because it would achieve certain things we want to achieve at the moment. And so we just say it does. Um, <laughs> and, you, and you can find very established scholars who are willing to lean into that um, in, in ways that I find quite distressing. Um, yeah, I get that people have unconventional arguments and I'm, and I'm happy to engage in those arguments. And, and of course, social media is often not the right venue for engaging in it. But there often does seem to be in, in a lot of incentives to um, encourage people to, um, uh, uh, let's say, develop uh, theories um, uh, that uh, they normally wouldn't be uh, trying to um, offer if, if we were simply talking about uh, conveying them in more scholarly arena as opposed to the more public arena. Yeah, so I think, I think that's all really interesting. And I agree with and someone who blogs, writes op-eds, has a podcast, which I may, I don't know, I'm not sure I'm going to continue or not. We'll see. Um, but a short story. Um, while, and people are going to yell at me for bringing up Posner again because I bring him up a lot. But <laughs> while he was a judge, uh, Judge Posner and I wrote an op-ed about Justice Scalia and his theocratic impulse. And, you know, because he was still a judge, obviously, we, we wrote it carefully. And I think we made a compelling argument about Scalia's theocracy, but we had to deal with the Smith case. So for those who don't know, sure. uh, the Smith case was a, was a case where Justice Scalia wrote an opinion that made free exercise claims much harder. That's all we need to say for now. You know, a kind of surprising opinion for Justice Scalia. He, he had his personal reasons for doing it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, to make this op-ed work, we had to deal with that because we were accusing him of a lot of other things. Um, and we sure. did. And the New York Times took it. And and by the time they were done with it, we just couldn't fit that part of it in. And yeah. and, and it made us – and so it made the op-ed much weaker than it would have been. And it made us more vulnerable to – you know, Ed Whelan, who was a joke, and I don't – we block each other and all that. But actually, Ed Whelan just wrote a review of a book review that I wrote. And he admitted in his review that he hadn't read the book I was reviewing, which is which is he did all of that for the national review. So, he, so I reviewed a book. Right. He criticized my review while admitting that he hadn't read the book. <laughs> but anyway, um, right. you know, and that op-ed at the New York Times was a fairly big deal, not because of me, of course, but because of Posner and criticizing Scalia. Sure. But it wasn't that strong. And it started off strong, right. you know, and it was frustrating. Right. 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 So I get it. However... Yeah, that's the challenge of these yeah. things. In one way, that's that's I think one of the advantages of podcasts. Actually, you have more time to sort of lay out arguments. Right. Um, uh, you're not doing it in writing, and so and so other kinds of mistakes creep in yes. uh, and difficulties associated with yes. that kind of form. Uh, but um, but you know, I so I just taught a class on for the last couple of years on uh, constitutional problems during the Trump administration because there's all these kind of weird exotic constitutional issues have come up uh, during this administration. And one of the nice things about it, and so it's much more sort of contemporaneous, focused on current events kind of class than what I would normally do. But one of the really nice things about it to help make it possible to do a class like that is just how much uh, sophisticated constitutional commentary there is in the public sphere that is um, uh, responsive to the moment, um, uh, that is accessible to a broader public, that's relatively brief that you can give to students to do in a reading for a day, for example. Um, I don't think I could have done that class, certainly not in the same kind of way, 
you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, just because those kinds of um, uh, analyses um, were not always there. And so there are lots of downsides to the sort of generating that stuff very quickly, putting it in this kind of form, et cetera. But there's also just tremendous upsides. And there are really good examples of um, this kind of discourse that really does elevate the conversation in public and brings the genuine expertise of scholars to bear on immediate problems um, and tries to make it accessible to a broader public. And that happens in podcasts, it happens in blogs. Uh, it probably doesn't happen so much on Twitter. But there are opportunities to do those no. things. It's really good. So, you know, I, I've had my Twitter nightmares, although for some reason for the last month, they've all come from my left, which I don't really understand uh-huh. since I consider myself a very progressive you know, person. But leaving... I was just called a lefty on Twitter uh, yesterday by a guy with an awful lot of followers. Right. So, yeah, weird things happen on right. Twitter. Well, I was called worse than worse names than you can imagine yeah, yeah, yeah. by people on my left. Um, but I do want to say, you know, that for people like me at non-elite places where, where I just, you know, if you're, you're Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, you have a built-in platform. There are social media has given those of us and not those places. Yeah. Um, and I also want to mention about blogging that um, – you know, I've written 45 law review articles and probably 500 people have read them. I don't know. You know, I mean, in right. total, cumulatively. Right. Um, sure. And I've had blog. I, it's not like the Vala conspiracy, which has a bigger reach, but I write for Dorf on Law and I'll have 2,000 people read a blog post, at least click on it. I assume they write right. of mine. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And, and I can't tell you many people. Um, Chris Sprigman of NYU uh, mm-hmm. tweeted about, I don't know, eight, six months ago. He's not a con law person. Chris was started off as a different, right. you know, but he tried to teach con law. And then he decided it's all made up. This is his word, shit. Um, so he, yeah. And then I wrote a whole blog path, blog, blog post about how to teach right. con law when we know it's just justice is making shit up. You don't have to agree or disagree right. yet. But the point is I had so many con law professors write me and say, right. I've been wrestling with this. And it's, sure. and it's hard. And it felt so good. And, and, and I think one blog post, now, you know, I'm a, I'm where I'm going to be. I'm a chair professor. You know, yeah. I'm 63. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. But to have your peers give you that feedback right. is really good. And it's very hard to do that in law review articles. It is. No, absolutely. It is one of the nice things about. I mean, so it, it's true about uh, scholarly articles. I find it true about books. Mm-hmm. Right? You yeah. spend a tremendous amount of time yeah. trying to write a book. Um, uh, years, uh, potentially, uh, you go through the process of getting out there and then you have no idea what happens to right. it, right? It just sort of disappears out into the void. Right. Uh, and you're sort of fortunate if, if uh, you sort of every once in a while get little morsels right. of, hey, somebody actually read the thing and they have a reaction. <laughs> right. um, so one of the really wonderful things about social media, but also about blog posts, not ads and other things is one, you get a, a massive reach relative to what academics often do. A lot more people are exposed to and read that stuff than, than what would be true of the average scholarly article, for example. Um, and the reaction is often much more immediate, um, where you can actually see the fact that people are reading it and they re- and right. they're responding to it. Um, sometimes not responding to it in the way you would hope, but <laughs> most <laughs> but of the you, time. But you are make it. You are at least uh, feeling like there's an audience uh, yeah. that you're reaching uh, to to some degree uh, with those kinds of things. And um, yeah, in that sense, it's it's a it is a um, uh, nice and somewhat rewarding. Uh, 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 difference than than the scholarly process, and I, I find that true of, of doing things like, um, you know, I publish a bunch of stuff in Lawfare, for example. Right. Um, uh, Lawfare, you know, by the last, way, uh, excuse me, Keith, for those listening, yeah. Lawfare is a 
really, really serious and important blog that people should read. Right. Pro- produced by the Heritage Foundation, primarily does sort of national security issues, but, but in law and legal issues, especially national security, but has really expanded out during the Trump years of doing sort of larger separation of powers kinds of problems uh, broadly. And so um, I've, I've published several things. And then one of the really lovely things about uh, doing that um, is, you know, you write something and then two days later, it's available for readers, right? right. As opposed to, and it's one of the nice things about law reviews, frankly, relative to the peer review process of, of political science journals, uh, you can write something long and scholarly, uh, send it off to law reviews, uh, and in just a few weeks, you know, it's accepted some Really? Uh, and in a few not months, anymore, it's actually No, that's not true anymore. So, and I, that's still pretty true, right? Whereas in peer review journals, I've had things that have taken years and years and years before they get accepted, let alone ever appear in print uh, in, in a peer review. Well, context. this will be our first our first disagreement. We'll have more later. Um, no, uh, Keith, the, 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 the law review process is as painful and awful as it could possibly be because from sending it in to pub- a real law review article I'm talking about, not an online mm-hmm. Well, I think yeah, online yeah. law review articles are real. What I meant is a print law review article. It's at yeah, least yeah. a year, at least, from submit. Trust me on this. From submission to, unless it's like a special symposium, and from submission to publication appearing in. Print. Yeah, it's at least a year. Yeah, yeah. No, the gap, the gap to actually get the thing in print is pretty long. Uh, but I am like the uh, mouse pushing the lever to get the food, right? So I, I just appreciate the immediate uh, reaction of, "Hey, you'll take this and you will publish it." Right. It's like, and, and for me, that's sort of massive success because then I move forward and think about other things, right? And so right. then I'm really annoyed by, oh, now I have to edit the thing, and oh, eventually it will show up in public and other people will see it. Right. Um, but but relative to the peer review process, that where you write something and and you know it might take years before the thing is even accepted for publication, uh, the speed of the law review process of getting accepted for publication is just extraordinarily faster. And so there's all kinds of frustrations, uh, admittedly, with that process. And there's all kinds of frustrations with uh, getting it to print. Uh, But compared to other scholarly journals and how they work, um, the law review world is a very nice complement to that system in how quickly it can move things along. Yeah. um, Even though it has lots of downsides. Yeah, I got (laughs) to say, I I don't like that take. Um, For one thing, Having second, you should publish in superior journals on occasion. Oh, then you might appreciate. Well, I did. Pu- I have published in constitutional commentary on numerous occasions, and and that yeah. is a peer review, peer review journal. Yeah, not quite the same, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but what I was going to say about. I mean, they're, they're in part because they're working in the lost world space, and so they, I think, they're trying to also right. move a little more. All right. Uh, uh, quickly. Well, you're forcing um, me to tell a story. Then. I know. You, no, you are for- no, you, okay. yeah, you are forcing me to tell my favorite law review story. Um, my ten-year article was called Justice Scalia, Critical Legal Studies, and the Rule of Law. And what this article basically said was that that Justice Scalia and Critical Legal Studies, a far left, some would call Marxist, but had much more in common than they would think. And my target in that was a guy named Mark Tushnet, who actually has been my mentor for my career. Um, And I was pretty critical of Mark. And comparing him to Critical Legal Studies, (laughs) I mean, sorry, comparing him to... um, to, to Scalia, Scalia yeah. is not something he, he probably would didn't like. appreciate that. Um, yeah, exactly. George Washington, and you know, so we're stuck with students. So George Washington right. takes it. And this is back in the day when no email, I mean, it was all by phone. No, right. It's all by yeah. Yeah, right, mail. And so <laughs> I had to then call the, yeah. you know, 10 or 15 elite law reviews above George Washington to ask them to take it. Right. So I left a message for the Michigan Law Review, and uh, the student calls me back and says, where was it accepted? And I said, right. George Washington, and here's my deadline. And he went, oh, right. 
<laughs> and yeah, I said, right. what do you mean, oh? And he yeah, said, yeah. well, you know, might have been better if it had been south of Georgetown. Right, And right. at the time, Tushnet was at Georgetown. And I said, right. well, I have an idea. Why don't you ask Tushnet his opinion about this? We, at the time, I didn't know him. We don't know yeah, each other. Yeah. He did right. give me comments on this article, pretty critical. But overall, I think he thought it was solid. But it's about him. So, and, it's, and it's critical right. of him. So call him and ask him. No, we don't do that. Right. And I said, what do you mean you don't yeah, do yeah, that? Yeah. He said, we, we don't sure. call professors. They do now, but they didn't then. And I said, so you care what the editors of the Georgetown Law Journal think, but you don't care uh, what yeah. their professor thinks? You don't have that problem. We have that problem. No, no. It's, it is a weird, weird world <laughs> of how law reviews work and, and, and how the decisions get made as to what to publish. And, uh, uh, and, and I frankly, from the outside, uh, just the process of submission is strange, right? Yes. And so um, I had no idea what I was doing the first few times I submitted the law. <laughs> so oddly, more than once, right, before I figured it out. But I didn't know what I was doing when I first, and in part because the web didn't exist in right. the same form to explain to me how it works, right? right? And so, so I submitted completely off cycle, for example, and I couldn't understand why everyone was rejecting right. this thing. <laughs> like, oh, well, it turns out because you're submitting like completely wrong time and everything's full. Right. Uh, yeah, which of course is not how the the normal academic publication no. process works okay. at all. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it's got all kinds of downsides and and, and oddities uh, to it, um, and and I have had my frustrations with it. But I, but I really, uh, one thing I, I like about our current uh, scholarly publishing environment, um, it, it, despite all the downsides of various components of it, is I do like the diversity, at least for people like you and me who are working in this particular space, uh, where everything from books to peer review journals to law reviews to blogs, uh, to blogs all exist as venues to try to get stuff out. Um, and, and you can make different points in different ones. You, they, I agree. appeal to different kind of audiences. Yep. It's a different process. And, yep. and so, uh, so I love the sort of options in that sense <laughs> of, of thinking, uh, well, look, that this thing I'm working on probably belongs in a book and I should be aiming for that. And other things I'm doing really belong in a blog post and I should be aiming for that. Um, and, and the fact that you can do all those things, um, uh, from where I sit now, uh, is, uh, is just, uh, terrific. Um, and, uh, you know, very different from how I felt when I was starting my career. Agreed. Agreed. So we got <laughs> sidetracked there. My fault about social yeah, media. Yeah, I know. We haven't talked about impeachment very um, much. Yeah, my, my bad. Um, but, but that's interesting. And I do think some of the people listening to this are academics at non-elite schools. And I think yeah. we all feel a little bit liberated by the different yeah. amount. Yeah. Uh, at least, you know, back in 1991, it effectively was law reviews, books or nothing. Right. Now it's much different. I, I, I do want to talk about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, but okay. I want to do it quickly because I do want to get to originalism. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> are, so, section, so why don't you tell everyone what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is and, and whether you think it is something that the Congress should use? So Section 3 of the, four, so the 14th Amendment, of course, is one of the Reconstruction Amendments. It actually has several parts. We tend to mostly pay attention to the first section because um, the first section has the most relevance to most jurisprudence in constitutional law, and it lays out the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, and the like. Section 3 is the one is one of the sections of the 14th Amendment we mostly ignore, um, in part because it does seem very antiquated and less relevant to day-to-day -day life, um, and it specifically uh, disqualifies um, from a future office, um, anyone who uh, has previously uh, held office and taken uh, an oath to defend the Constitution and then subsequently engaged in insurrection. Um, and then Congress can waive that disqualification by a two-thirds uh, vote. Um, 
Obviously, this had lots of significance in the immediate context of the Civil War and the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And so the potential application was quite obvious to them uh, and the potential need to exclude people who um, uh, might not uh, be found guilty in treason trials. But nonetheless, um, uh, they thought uh, many of the uh, Reconstruction Republicans thought were uh, inappropriate to ever hold um, public office again. Um, uh, this was designed to deal with them. Um, the interesting question is, uh, does it help us with anything else um, since then? And the answer is mostly sort of been thought to be not much. Um, and so it's really been sort of isolated as a sort of historical oddity that was relevant to this war context, but not so relevant to subsequent context. It's been used a little bit since then, but not very much. And so, um, you know, it's one of the weird features of the Trump administration that's made us talk about all kinds of obscure features of the Constitution right. and Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is one of them. He has been great for, for, for constitutional people um so, i don't know if it's good or bad necessarily right we get we spend our time now talking about self-pardons right. and you know uh, insurrections right. and all kinds of things well, so uh, if it, if evidence comes out that he really did know about encourage expect right and not do anything about the attack on the Capitol, and i right. think that will come out I, I i have no idea but i think it will um the advantage of using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment over an impeachment trial in the Senate is that it takes majority vote in both houses, not two-thirds. And I th right. think that's a big deal. I also think maybe – I'm very cautious about this. I'm not usually a cautious right. person. You know that. But I am cautious about this. Yeah. Maybe labeling him an insurrectionist right. is a good idea for the future. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. I, you know, it's uh, judging judging uh, how people respond to Trump, and uh, his, I, I've never been very good at. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I I seem uh, not to appreciate the charms that others <laughs> others see in him, um, and so I, I find it. I continue to find it puzzling the extent to which he clearly has a. Uh, charismatic uh, influence on uh, large numbers of the public um, and the electorate um, in ways I just constantly find surprising. And so I don't know what it takes to really put a serious dent in, in that charismatic appeal. Um, and I don't know if labeling him an insurrectionist would necessarily do it. Um, it's entirely possible it um, creates a backlash such that people say, oh, well, you know, you've, you're trying to... Sure. Um, uh, keep out my uh, visionary leader, and this is just an elitist purge, and uh, we ought to be even more supportive right. um, of this populist candidate. So I think there are some real risks associated just on that dimension. But lay that aside. So one of the complications of Section 3 um, is it has this sort of bold statement um, that if you've engaged in insurrection under these conditions, you, you're disqualified from future office holding. Um, and it has this specific mechanism about how you can relieve people of the disqualification. Um, but it doesn't say anything about how do you enforce the disqualification. Right. It doesn't say anything about how do we know whether or not somebody has been disqualified. It doesn't even tell us what insurrection is and right. how we go about defining it. So it's all these very open-ended uncertainties about the actual mechanics of applying Section 3, which is part of what's complicated uh, its use over time. Um, although the fact we don't have very many insurrections helps. <laughs> so... Um, so and I and I now as people are trying to resuscitate Section Three for this purpose, um, I've seen several different kinds of theories being offered as to how it might be relevant, um, and I'm much more skeptical than some than of others. And so some people have suggested um, that tr that uh, Trump could actually put be put on trial in an ordinary court um, on oh, charges really? of insurrection. I haven't heard and that. And if he's found, and if he's found guilty, well, in fact. Uh, um, 
it was suggested the other day in part, not, not necessarily even for a criminal trial, but instead Congress created a specific statute designed to enforce Section 3 in which you'd have a judicial hearing to determine whether or not you fell within the confines of insurrection. I actually don't mind that as a process, right? Because my concern about Section 3 and the way people talk about it in general is um, uh, how much due process do you get uh, in being able to defend yourself against this kind of charge? How specific is the charge itself going to be? Um, is there going to be some kind of mechanism to um, uh, to uh, arbitrate uh, these kinds of claims? Or are we just going to say by majority vote, Congress can ban people from holding future office? Um, and if we think that's true, um, I think that's a really slippery slope that it, once we start going down, it's going to have all kinds of really dire problems about how democracy works in general. Um, because uh, I do not imagine that's going to be limited to the Donald Trumps of the world. It's going to cast a, we're going to wind up using it uh, across a much wider range of, of government officials. But this kind of process uh, where you say, okay, we're the, the disqualification uh, might take place, but only after um, a serious um, and fair and fairly rigorous uh, adjudicatory process, um, I'm much more open to that idea. Um, uh, in general, I've been sort of skeptical about Section 3 as opposed to thinking about the impeachment power, because the impeachment power also includes the ability to disqualify. Right. And part of what I like about the impeachment power um, is precisely that it gives you uh, a trial um, in the Senate, and that's a more political process than what you get in front of a court, and there are downsides and upsides to that. Um, um, and of course, the, the impeachment power includes a much wider range of potential offenses. Um, and so you don't have to worry quite so much about how exactly to define insurrection as opposed to a wider set of things that we think are a right. kind of political misconduct that ought to get you disqualified yeah. from holding future office. So I like both the sort of breadth of high crimes and misdemeanors compared to insurrection. And I like the fact that it has a judicatory process, even though it's the Senate um, to do it. Um, and some of the versions of Section 3, I think, uh, don't have that. Um, but there are other versions that I find a little more appealing and I think are more plausible, although I'm not at, uh, at all confident that, in fact, you'd find yourself uh, with the kind of uh, factual um, uh, grounding to really support an insurrection claim that would lead a court uh, to condemn the president as having participated in insurrection. Yeah. So on, on Twitter, yeah, yeah. again, it seems like one of these things where people sort of hope about what would happen, right? Um, and rather than actually, right. um, it could you know, uh, having a hard-headed reason for actually thinking that's how it's going to play out. And so a lot of people could find themselves very disappointed that you put Trump into a judicial process, and lo and behold, he's acquitted. Right. right? Next thing you know, he's he's screaming about total vindication, uh, which may not be what you're looking for. Yeah. On Twitter yesterday, Jed Sugarman of Fordham, who I really respect, he he, he uh -huh. really thought this is a terrible idea. It'll lead to yeah. progressives and liberals being, but but my response to that, maybe yeah. I mean certainly maybe, but yeah, yeah, we had a violent attack breaking of the Capitol. I mean, yeah, if that's not insurrection, then I really don't know what insurrection is. Um, but I don't want to get, I don't want to get, I don't want to comment. So I, so I don't mind the people who actually stormed the Capitol. Um, uh, I I think we certainly should be throwing the book at them, yeah. and we should be thinking about things like seditious conspiracies. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in thinking about how they ought to be criminally prosecuted. Um, and I would like to see um, uh, prosecutors seriously examining, does this meet the factual requirements of, of something like that um, in, in some of these cases? Um, I'm just much more skeptical about, do you act, can you actually develop the evidence to think that um, somebody like the president or some of the other politicians, for example, right. um, actually uh, meet that kind of standard? Um, 
And and I'm really skeptical of the idea of what well, we really ought to do is ask the majority of Congress to decide what they think um, uh, counts as insurrection, because it's not hard to imagine people saying, well, have you said nice things about the Portland rioters um, <laughs> trying to break into the federal courthouse? And if you did, you too were providing aid and comfort to insurrectionists. Fair enough. Um, because that's just as much of an insurrectionist kind of activity um, by some lights as what happened in the Capitol. Um, I don't think nearly as severe and all kinds of other things I would distinguish them. But it's very easy to imagine those things. And, and that was Jed, right, that, that, that was Jed's concern. And it's a fair one. Yeah. All right. And even sort of writing and more generally, right? So even laying aside the federal courthouse thing in Portland, um, just generally the summer riots, right? right. It's, it's, I think it's not hard to imagine um, uh, how a majority of a Congress might be constructed um, such that they would think that all kinds of politicians who, um, in the view of the majority, uh, was lending aid and comfort to uh, rioters um, ought to be disqualified from future office. And, and that just seems like a door we don't want to open. Fair enough. Um, fair enough. I'm also re- very reluctant to expel people like Cruz and Hawley oh, from too. the legislature for similar kinds of me reasons, too. right? Me too. Well, at least there's a very high bar of expelling, right? It takes two yeah. thirds vote. Yeah. And so I, I, I value the high bar. Yes. Um, but, but similarly, I think there's just a, a lot of of, of again, wishing that bad things can happen to your political enemies um, that will allow people to uh, set aside all the general concerns they would have in any other kind of circumstance, right. um, or they were thinking about it in more cool detachment from any particular episode, um, where they might say, well, maybe it's not such a great idea to ex- be expelling senators for making motions that are allowed by the rules of the Senate. Well, well, I, I agree. As much as I despise Cruz and Hawley, I, I agree with that yeah. 100%. And there's that whole cliche, bad cases, you know, um, hard case, yes. hard cases make bad law, and I agree with that. Right. I, I would push back a little bit on. I, I think there's a lot about Trump that can be a one out situation, and and, and yeah. maybe this one, but but I want to move on. Um, so I need to set the stage. I need to. Re- I, need, sure. I need to. So give me a minute here. I need to set the stage um, for you and originalism and me. Sure. So um, most people who are listening to this or watching this probably know. That although the idea of using the original meaning of the Constitution is as old as the Constitution, and I, I concede that um, sure. in my work, it, it, it became a school of thought, a separate school of thought, uh, you know, in the late 60s, 70s, when a law professor named Raoul Berger and, and, and Robert Bork, who at the time was Yale, at Yale mm-hmm. um, came up with this notion that the Warren Court – and, and Berger was a liberal, he was a Democrat, he was a liberal Democrat yeah. – yeah. um, came up with this idea, which I, by the way, agree with, but that's a different conversation, um, uh-huh. that the Warren Court was going crazy and out of its mind. Right. And the only way to rein in the Warren Court was through relying on what they called the original intent of the, of the drafters. Today, we right. mostly call it original meaning. I, I, we can get into that in a minute. But sure. um, so that, that all happens in the 60s and 70s. And, and just for the record, for people out there, I am on record in a book. 10 blog posts and five articles. I agree with Bork and Berger. Uh, I'm actually more originalist than any liberal you're going to find. Um, but I agree with them because I believe their work was more about what we call deference than originalism. Yeah. To them, yeah. it was a tool to get judges to do less. And I want to make that clear. Right. Originalism right. was a tool for judges to do less. So that, and that goes on through the 70s and the 80s. And then we get... 12 years of Ronald Reagan and George Bush judges. And in comes Keith Whittington. <laughs> and in comes Randy Barnett. And in comes Larry Solomon. Is that fair? You three? 
Sure. And you come up yeah. with those two law professors, and you're not a law professor, but right. with this idea of new originals. And you are mm-hmm. your name will be forever associated until you can't, um, if you can't, which I think you should, <laughs> uh, with the new with the new originalism with Randy and Larry. So can you just let's just start off by sure. was this a group effort? Was this an individual effort? Because the three of you really did change the conversation, at least in academic circles. Uh, so I th- so I think it's fair that we that um, uh, we did a lot. We weren't the only ones uh, working in these areas or talking about it at the time. But I do think the 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 three of us in particular attached this label yep. of new originalism, and I think we're doing a lot of work surrounding a common set of ideas um, uh, that did help. Um, uh, move the agenda on thinking about originalism in constitutional theory. Um, and it, I think we all came to it separately and for somewhat different reasons. Um, uh, so I started working on originalism in my doctoral dissertation at Yale in the early 90s. Um, and uh, Ackerman was one of my professors uh, there. Um, uh, I, I arrived at Yale as a grad student um, you know, not too long after the Bork hearings and sort of the fights that occurred during the Reagan administration over these things. So I was intrigued um, by uh, originalism as a theory um, uh, generally. Um, and But as I started working on it and thinking about it more as part of thinking about potential dissertation project, um, I was um, increasingly frustrated by what I saw in the theory. It seemed to be very under-theorized, um, not well worked out, had all kinds of problems um, with it, uh, wasn't particularly responsive to the various criticisms that have been made of it. Um, so I became increasingly interested about, is it possible to construct a better version of, the, of an originalist theory, one that actually engages the scholarly arguments and can stand up to scholarly scrutiny to a greater degree? And I came to that partially because I had these interests in originalism and whatnot, but it, partially because I, I was in grad school primarily as a political theorist and was sort of interested in democratic theory generally. Um, and, and there are lots of overlaps between thinking about the specific context of, of originalism and that. Um, it's also in that context I first became interested in, in impeachments um, uh, because the other half of my dissertation was was not on originalism, but instead was on a kind of living constitutionalism. How has the constitution developed over time, primarily outside the court system and impeachments seem to be one of these interesting vehicles or places uh, where Congress was really on its own to grapple with constitutional meaning, uh, where the court wasn't gonna be looking over their shoulder and modifying it. Um, so oddly, I'm still talking about the same things I was talking right. about. Uh, full circle. We call that full circle. <laughs> it, full circle, right? So, so you never fully escape your old research projects. And um, although, you know, impeachment's one in particular. So I actually thought at the time, right, the impeachments would never be relevant again because this was like this historical thing that I thought was sort of interesting, but, you know, that will never happen. So sort of, you know, arcane and irrelevant uh, as, as any good scholar should be. Uh, and... Um, and the originalism I really thought was sort of dead in the water um, uh, by the early mid nineties. It didn't seem to be taken seriously in academia, um, politically, it didn't seem to be gaining a lot of traction. I really uh, thought probably that nothing I was doing in the dissertation uh, would resonate with anyone anywhere. Uh, and so, um, so I was sort of pleasantly surprised that uh, that it did. And, um, you know, and in part, I think- well, Keith, I'm sorry, let's we, cut to the yeah. chase. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. you changed the Berger-Bork kind of deferential yes. originalism to something else. Tell people listening, watching what you ch- you did. You changed it. 
Well, so I, so I, so, so my emphasis, I think, was on uh, several things. So partially trying to think about how do you separate it from the specific arguments about intentions um, that people had and how to think about intentions, I think, in a more sophisticated way that um, uh, I think bleeds over into public meaning. Um, I think they're pretty connected, but a lot of people draw a sharp line and really want to focus on public meaning of the text um, instead. Uh, pause, um, pa- pa- pause for one second. Yeah. So that, that distinction between original public meaning and original intention. Right. Isn't the best, there's, there's other evidence, but isn't a substantially right. important element of original meaning the intentions of the people who wrote the words? Sure. No, I think they are. I mean, I think the part of the emphasis on, I mean, Richard so, K, look, if you're out there, that was for you. Sorry, Richard K, that was for you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right. No, they're totally fair. And I like Kay's work a lot. I mean, Kay Kay was one of the people who I think was taking a very sophisticated approach to thinking about originalism uh, when I started writing and and heavily influenced um, the kind of way I I wound up approaching originalism in in general. So um, uh, so I'm glad you had a shout out to Kay because he is actually quite important for for, uh, my own uh, intellectual development. so, so right, intentions, I think, are relevant to thinking about uh, what the public meaning is, which is one reason why I think that they um, are connected in ways that other people would draw a sharper line between them. I think part of the emphasis, though, of why people would want to focus their attention on meaning in particular um, is, instead of intent is, um, one, you have this struggle of what do you do about sort of so-called secret intentions, right? So to what degree should we really be focused on what was inside people's heads as opposed to what they were saying in public? Um, and, the, and the move toward public meaning really emphasizes what is the case you made? What's the claims you made? What's the rule you laid down in public that other people could accept, uh, sure. access, uh, not necessarily what intentions people had in their head? It also, I think, emphasizes in useful ways sort of a distinction that sometimes people make between sort of uh, uh, expected applications and what the rule is that's being designed, right? So a lot of intentions that people have about adopting a piece of text are very focused on particular cases they have in front of them and they want to deal with um, and expectations they will have about what the implications of adopting this text is going to be down the road. Um, and, and part of what the emphasis on public meaning um, wants to highlight is, look, what you've adopted or not those expectations about future applications or the particular cases people have in mind, uh, what you're adopting is a rule. Um, and the rule might, in fact, disappoint their, their expectations about how this gonna, is going to play can, out down the can road. Can we pause on that um, point for a second? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment as it applies to gender discrimination. I, I want to talk about this with you. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so what Larry Solomon has said, what right. Ilya Soman has said, and what Il- Elon Werman has said, three right. originals, is that yeah. we don't care that they expected that women wouldn't have equal rights. We, and and right. they didn't. I mean, of course, women in 1868 didn't have equal rights. Yeah. They couldn't vote. They were married. They were property of their husbands and so on. Right. But did not think they were making sweeping changes in the legal well, landscape. Well, it's more than that, yeah. right? I mean, you're the expert on the 14th right. Amendment. They discussed this. I'm not. Oh, okay. okay. So, well, I, yeah. I'm not an expert on the 14th Amendment, right? I mean, so it is true that there are others who know the 14th Amendment far better okay. than I do. But You yeah. know a lot about it. But we'll see how far we can okay, explore this before I start feel like I've, I've exceeded my grasp on Some on of the, the objection to the Equal Protection yeah. Clause and Privileges and Immunities Clause right. was if you give – if you make – and giving blacks the right to vote. Giving blacks the right – Rights. The objection was, oh, no, then we'll give women rights. And everybody said, right. don't worry about it. We're not going to give women right. rights. All right. So yeah. how do we go from if, if someone is an original public meaning originalist, how yeah. do we go from 
Right. Absolute certainty that the original right. public meaning of the 14th Amendment in 1868 did not mean equal rights. Right. To right. originalists saying it does mean equal rights. How, how do right. we do that? Yeah, so I certainly think that um, um, to the extent that it seems like everybody um, had a common set of understandings about what the uh, implications of adopting a rule were going to be, um, uh, you should be pretty cautious and hesitant if you think you've come to a different conclusion uh, <laughs> than the people who are drafting it, right? Um, uh, and and because because one thing that should lead you to do is one, just think that your reasoning is wrong about why you think some implications go out one way rather than the other way. But the other thing it should, I think, lead you to be very cautious about is the possibility that you're misunderstanding the rule they adopted. Um, uh, and that really, that there's a logic by which they're getting the implications that they uh, think are gonna follow from it. Um, uh, and, and that logic really implies that they, they were adopting a somewhat different rule than you initially thought. It's a little bit like the late impeachment thing, right? Where for you, it might be completely intuitive. You read this text and you think, oh, well, of course, X, Y, and Z follows from it. Um, and then you start exploring it more deeply and you realize, oh, well, it turns out uh, it doesn't so right. easily follow. It goes in a different direction. And sometimes you don't know that until you start looking pretty carefully, right? And so, um, and that's true for both us. And it's also true for them, right? When they were drafting in the first place, right? For them, it may be intuitive to say, well, of course, it's not going to have anything to do with women. And, and you really, I think, ought to interrogate that to see, okay, well, look, let's really think through the principle you've adopted here, the rule you've laid down. And thinking that through, and some of it may be that they just got it wrong. It could be. What do you mean? Got, hold on. Fact. What do you mean? Got yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Explain. Got it wrong. So they got it wrong in the sense that they that they are wrong about the implications that follow from the principle they've adopted. Um, okay, hold on, hold on. I, I want to go yeah. slowly here because, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got it. They they got the implications wrong from the rule they adopted. Right. Now, what what, what Solomon right. and 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 what Solomon says about that, yeah. and, and so is Chris Green, who's a friend of mine at Ole Miss, sure, and right. They all say they thought women's skills were limited, you know, and women couldn't do certain yeah. things. And, right. and Solemn, by the way, calls that a view about facts, not even facts, but a right. view about. OK, right. So I want to I, I mean, I wish we had another hour, but we. Right, which is a different kind of which is a different implication. I think it's also possible that the thing they got wrong is the understanding of the fact situation. Yes. Right? And so it could be they, they're making certain assumptions about what the implications are going to be. And, and what drives them to those assumptions is an, a certain understanding of the facts, and it turns out those are wrong, or it turns out they change over time such that the, such the rule now has different effects than it previously had because our circumstances are quite different. Okay, wait, um, pause. I think that's totally consistent with thinking the rule itself is fixed um, and, and is determined by, right. their, by, but, by the meaning of it when, at the time it was adopted. But, but, but this is the question I've been wanting to ask you for 10 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything. We'll see how badly I screwed up. Everything okay. you just said. I wish we could replay right. it. I wish I could roll the tape sure. back. I wish Matt could roll the tape. Well, you back. will be able to. Replay but it. everything you just said, right. a living constitutionalist would say. No, sir, no. Hold I on, think they'll that. Let me finish. Yeah. Um, they may have gotten the facts wrong. They may not have been aware right. of the implications. The facts right. might even change. And Solom says, changes right. in facts can lead right. judges to disregard original public meaning. He says that. He absolutely says that. that, that, that I'd have to look at how he says it, because that seems surprising. But yeah, go ahead. Um, I've quoted him in five different articles. No, no, so be, I, I just would want to see what the context is he's saying, because I'm trying to figure out, do I disagree with him? Or do I mean, just <laughs> well, not well, well, what well, he's saying? Well, well, but anyway. Well, but, yeah. but here, so what I'm saying about the 14th Amendment and women, I think we yeah, can say yeah. about virtually every right. constitutional law issue which is this, 
The people. Hold on, let me strike that. A lot of issues we have today, they never thought about. Drone strikes on American yes. citizens in Yemen, they didn't think about. And Absolutely, all kinds of course. Of but when they thought about issues like gender equality, which they did, right. um, yep. if we're allowed to discard the expectations we know they had because right. of a change in, either they were wrong or times have changed, that's what Justice Brennan right. would say. That's what Larry Tribe would say. That's what Mike Dorff would say. They would say, we go back and we look at the meaning, yeah. the original meaning, and that's a factor. Yeah, yeah. But if right. things change, we shouldn't be bound by those meanings today. No, but note, I did not say the original meaning is a factor. I said the original meaning is fixed. And, and the question is what the implications that follow from the original meaning is. Part of where I think Brennan would go a different direction is he does not think the original meaning uh, matters necessarily. I don't right? think so. We can, discard, we can discard the original meaning and replace it with something we think is better. Well, that's what Solemn, and that's that's where, what Solemn did. That's, that's what they do. So, that, so that is not – so it depends on what you think about the meaning is, right? So if you think that the expected applications are part and parcel of the meaning that they adopted in that text, then, yeah, that's for sure part of what the, the so-called new originalists would be changing. And there certainly are originalists who think that they've made – that the new originalists have made exactly that mistake um, and that the new originalists are no better than the living constitutionalists yeah. because they, they have made Steve that Steve Smith at San Diego um, has made that argument strongly. I think my yeah. – Right. So, right. So Steve's not happy um, about about these kind of moves. He thinks they're wrong as uh, they get the Constitution wrong. They're wrong about the nature of the theory and how we ought to understand it. And I understand those those disagreements. Um, I'm on the other side of it, which means that I think there's actually is a lot of commonality between um, originalist theory, as I understand it, um, and what a lot of living constitutionalists uh, would say and do the actual how they cash that out and work through the logic. There are going to be differences. But, but I think there's actually is a lot of common ground. Um, I think though there are also some pretty important differences. Um, they're still there. I think much less commonly now than was true early on. So I just taught a seminar on originalism, for example, and my starting point really was uh, to give the students uh, material from the progressive period through the 1960s, right? And one thing that's really striking is the extent to which people just say, uh, yeah, yeah, they had some ideas, but we ought to just implement a constitution that satisfies us, then we think is it would have a great set of principles and rights. People just don't talk that way anymore, right? And so that's mostly off the table, which, which so part of, part of why I think there's so much common ground then between how I think about originalism and how a lot of living constitutionalists think about their theories it's because not only have I moved from where Bork was on originalism, but the living constitutionalists have abandoned a lot of the more extreme claims they were commonly making through much of the 20th century. Um, and there's still, I think, important differences. There's things to argue about, um, et cetera. Um, but I just do think there's been a lot of convergence um, among, among theorists um, and sort of what, how we think about these things and talk about them. And and so there's still small differences. Those differences are still important. They're, they give plenty of fodder to argue about. Um, but, but I do think that that um, uh, an awful lot of scholars have sort of converged toward a more common position. Well, I, um, I will I will take I will take that because that's been my 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 scholarly kind of ambition yeah. for the last few years. As 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 Elena Kagan said, we're all originalists. Now, yeah, yeah. Right? Oh so no, it's, no, it's, that's, and well, it's in this no, it's in this no, sense, right? No, <laughs> no, no. No, 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 no. What she I said I just had to poke it with Wait, well, no. Right. Don't spread that rumor. She said that after she said sometimes the right. Constitution lays down clear rules and when it does we should yeah. follow them. President has to be thirty five. Yeah. Sometimes Which I think is sometimes they lay down general principles. Then we have to follow right. those. She's balking yeah. all the way. 
and and Balkans. Yeah, yeah. And I, so Balkan, I think, is pretty good on the theory. Actually, yeah. I think Balkan's lousy in the practice. <laughs> so yeah, good so on the all theory. my disagreements. Well, that's interesting. A lot of my disagreements with Jack are about how how what the history looks like and how we play it out. But the um, and how do we interpret particular texts? Right. Well, on the theory side, I think Jack's actually. Um, uh, uh, quite good. Yeah. So, um, so, so I learned a lot from him, and I and I agree with him right. about a lot. Of stuff. Jack was my first podcast person, um, and uh, what I told him, and what I told him in person five years ago, was the book "Living Originalism" that he wrote. Yeah. I I mean, think I mean for lay people that title is very strange. Well, for law professors, that title mm-hmm. is very strange. Is one of the most oh, rich, good. accurate descriptions right. of how constitutional law is made in this country. It's not just the Supreme Court. It's movements. It's Congress. It's yeah. people. What's wrong about that book is the word originalist, because there's nothing <laughs> really originalist about that book. And um, we're running out of time. So I need to well, ask certainly you. Certainly some originalists do agree with that. But yeah, say again? Yeah. Uh, certainly a lot of originalists would agree about that, yeah. about that complaint about Jack. I, I, I agree, though. It's a terrific book and well, yeah, worth, yeah. well worth reading. So, all right. So I want to thank you for this. And I, I want to end this, not yet, but with a big question. Jacob Tenbrock in, 1930, uh-huh. in 1939. 1939. Yep. I'm, I'm terrible at math. What's that? 20 years, 30, you know, you know well long before time the ago. Warren Court. Writes right. a series. Before I was born. I'm sorry? Before I was born. Before I was born. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but before I was, I'm older than you, but before I was born also. Um, he writes a series of five law review articles in the California yeah. Law Review in 1939. And I admit it's the height of the legal realist movement. I, I admit that. But Absolutely. where he says from the very beginning, the Supreme Court has not cared about text, has not cared about history. They do what they think is best and right, pretty much all things right. considered. And he gives proof of that. And it's, it's an amazing sure. work for 1939. Um, right. As a descriptive matter, not a normative yeah, yeah. matter. And I'm having right, right, right. trouble in, in reading you and getting you pinned down on this. As a dis- well, it's because I wear I wear multiple hats, okay. and so I, I I am all over the place. Well, well we all that wasn't a criticism. I, I just, <laughs> I was, well, you know, I'm a political scientist, so right. I uh, yeah. They, so some of what I do tries to talk about those descriptive issues and how I think the court actually behaves. And then I also have this interest in normative theory and what I think the court sure. ought to be doing. Sure. Uh, and never the twain shall meet. Yeah, me too. You and me both, because you know I'm a I'm a I'm a clear error Alexander Hamilton yeah. guy. So. We've right. never had that Supreme Court. Um, I, I do want to ask you, um, Keith, in all seriousness, my first book, Supreme Myths, went through, yeah. I don't know, a dozen heavy doctrinal areas where I showed, A, the court changes its mind over time, all the time, in, in virtually yeah. every area of litigated constitutional law, and two, right. in almost every doctrinal strain, there is incoherence that makes the blood boil. Right. Because what they're really doing in the big cases, the cases we care about, is what they think best. And, and, right. and, and, and as Judge, again, Judge Posner described in How Judges Think, when you have a case that raises your blood and, and is abortion, affirmative action, campaign finance, you know, the big issue, right. you have an intuition of how you want the case to come out, and then you see if the law allows it. And if it's Judge Posner, it might not allow it because he's, when he was a judge, bound right. by it. But the Supreme Court's not bound by anything. Are you a legal realist when it comes to a descriptive account of the Supreme Court? Pure description. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, no, I think I'm pretty realist about the court in, in, in that sense. Um, uh, I, 
I don't know if I'd go as far as more extreme versions of that, um, uh, which exist within political science as well, where they uh, there are those who say it's all just policy preferences all the way down. Um, and, and I tend to resist that um, within uh, political science debates. Um, I think the law does matter. It shapes uh, what the justices are doing. But in particular, when we talk about the sort of subset of cases that are most divisive, most polarizing, uh, where the law is least clear, the policy preference is most intense, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of just um, uh, policy that drives those decisions. And I do think policy in that sense also rests on the back of um, uh, there's a set of value commitments that underlie that, um, that help guide sort of why the justice have these policy preferences. There's a set of larger understandings about the constitutional order that helps uh, set up those disputes. But in the, in the, in the context of the specific debates and in, in the specific cases, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of policymaking going on. I think judges, one reason why I think there's never going to be a very good match between the normative stuff and the uh, empirical stuff um, is the judges are um, to some degree a kind of policymaker, um, and and moreover they're collective institutions and they're politically responsive and politically um, uh, situated. And so uh, no matter how beautiful my normative theory is, um, uh, they they've got their own things they're doing, and, and that what they're doing is not constitutional theory. Um, and so. And so there's going to be a gap there, right? And and I think if you're going to realistically think about the empirics of the court, um, that's part of what's going on. So I just had a book to come out, one of these books I worked on for a decade, um, uh, Repugnant Laws on the History of Judicial Review and the Supreme Court of, of Acts of Congress. It's a great book, American by history. the way. It's a great book. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, one feature of that is very much the how is the court situated within the broader political environment and how are decisions um, being shaped and influenced by lots of political assumptions that are, go, that are going into uh, those decisions. And that's true, particularly the high profile cases, right? The lower profile cases are often much more technical. The temperature is cooled uh, politically. Um, and you see the judges, I think, behaving a little differently, but especially in these high profile things, um, uh, the things that are most contested, the things we all care the most about, um, you know, it, politics is pretty close to the surface. So when you say, and we're about done, but when you say they're policymakers, yeah. and when you say the politics, I think you said are close to the surface and all of that. Right. I'm wondering, I'm asking you a personal question. This is a yeah, totally yeah. selfish, personal question. And I ask it on behalf of people like Mark Tushnet, um, Jeremy Waldron, sure. um, you know, yeah. all the legal realists of the 1930s, Carl Llewellyn, Holmes to some degree. Um, right. Do you understand my frustration that I have a hard time getting academics, not the American, when I talk to non-lawyers, they get this, but when I talk to academics, when I say, in the cases the justices care about, the law plays at most a minimal role compared to their evaluation of what would be the consequences of their decision, which is not that different from you saying, they have a yeah, policy-making yeah, yeah. role, but 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 when you say that, it sounds like it's okay. What I what, what I'm saying is, why can't we unanimously agree that the right. Supreme Court, as a descriptive matter, since right. Dred Scott, has been an sure. institution that their preferences will override the law in cases they care about, which is why Justice Ginsburg, an American hero. Yeah. Who was a who who deserves to be an American hero for her prior Supreme Court work, but voted liberal every time. There's almost no cases yeah. she didn't vote liberal, and there are almost no right. cases Alito and Thomas vote. Right. Don't vote conservative. 
Why can't we why can't we just admit that? Like, why can't you just say to me, Thomas is a Republican judge who votes Republican. Ginsburg was a Democrat judge who voted Democrat 99 percent of the time. Why is that hard to say? Well, well, so, so just as a footnote, I would say well before Dred Scott. OK, fine. <laughs> All right, <laughs> so fine. From the very start of the court, right. this was true. Uh, and it's and it's still true. Sorry now. for that. Rant, um, by the way. No, no, no. That's, uh, you know, to- totally reasonable. And I, and I do think um, uh, you're right. I mean, law professors, I think, have a vested interest in resisting this. Uh, I wrote that, that and got in trouble. Is. I wrote that in my book and I got in big trouble. For yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> right. The political scientists just don't. Although it's striking the extent to which I've, you know, talked to law professors who don't do con law and they're like, you know, that con law stuff, man, that's just all made up yeah. stuff. And, and you know, not like the real law that I do <laughs> um, over here in contracts or something. Um, and, you know, so so con law gets that kind of rap, I think, even even among law professors. It's yeah. But but the struggle professionally um, for a lawyer, for a law professor um, is to try to make legal sense of what the court's doing and what the arguments are here. You, you can't just walk into court as a litigator, um, even in one of these cases and say, um, uh, look, justices, this is the Republican position on this. Act accordingly, um, right? That's that's not how it works. You well, 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 well that's not how it works. But in fact, but in fact, whether it's right. affirmative action, let's talk about you know Fisher versus Texas, or whether it's abortion, or whether it's um, Citizens United, or whether it's right. the death penalty currently happening. In fact, you could walk into. You're not going to change just. You will not change Thomas's or Ginsburg's votes, no matter what you say in those cases. You won't. No, you're not. Although, although I don't, I, I think it's re, to some degree reductive to uh, refer to them simply as Republican and Democratic positions on that. And moreover, I think it's also um, no. I would say conservative uh, and liberal. That's what I'd say. Yeah, conservative and liberal. I think captures it more yeah. appropriately. And, and to some degree, it's also wrong in the sense that um, I mean, one thing we've we've observed quite a lot over the last four years uh, is that in the political realm. Uh, 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 Terms like Republican and let alone conservative agreed uh, can be highly malleable as to what, right. <laughs> what falls yeah. in those categories. To, to, to be clear, but, I am not an attitudinalist. Yeah. I'm not a political science yeah. attitudinalist. I am a it's values all the way down, not politics all the way down. Yeah, and of course, I think the attitude. Well, the attitudinalists are sort of uh, uh, so the attitude. Just to be clear for the audience, right? So there's a there's a uh, theory of judicial decision making that arises in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, that is particularly focused on the U.S. Supreme Court and particularly interested in arguing that individual justices vote on the behavior, on the basis of uh, their underlying preferences in the cases that come in front of them, and those preferences are reduced to their attitudes. Um, what's what has always been a little obscure about the attitudinalist? It's it's very useful for descriptive um, empirical work and political science. You can do a lot with it. Um, it has its limitations too. Um, I've been a critic in various ways, but the, um, uh, but one thing that's sort of obscure about attitudinalism is what exactly the nature of the attitudes are. Um, and so if you say that justice is a conservative justice and therefore they'll vote in particular kinds of fairly predictable ways, uh, what is the thing you're capturing and saying they're a conservative justice? And it's a bundle of things, I think. Some sure. it's It may be some partisan preferences, it may be some policy preferences, a set of values, a set of understandings about the Constitution and the, and the rules associated with it. Um, and so it's a, and, and some of those things are going to be more um, in the fore of the decision making in certain kinds of cases and other kind of cases. And so I think it's kind of messy once you get under the surface of what we mean when we say attitudinalism. Yet, yet, yeah. and I'm going to say yeah, this, yeah, then give yeah, you the last right. word, then say goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet, Sotomayor and Ginsburg yeah. reliably vote a certain way. 
Thomas and right. Alito reliably vote a certain way. And then we had the Suiters, the Blackmans, the Whites, the Stevenses, the O'Connors, the Kennedys, right. who reliably right. we weren't sure. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's because Alito and Thomas are really conservative people. And Ginsburg and Sotomayor yeah. are really liberal people. And Stevens, Blackman, uh, White, Souter, and Kennedy were more moderate people. The point I want to make in that, yeah. Keith, is their— No, I think that's fair. Yeah. Th- th- their moderation or their liberalism or their conservatism, sure. it's about that, not about pre-existing legal material in the high-profile cases we're talking about. You can tell me why yeah, I'm wrong in that. Yeah, I was going yeah, to say there's an important qualification here in that— um, uh, you know, it's it's a subset of the cases the justices deal with in which one can say that that uh, Sotomayor and Thomas are going to reliably be in opposite ends of the of the case, right? There's an awful lot of decisions uh, where they're on the same side um, of of these cases, although fewer than there used to be. No, no, that's um, true, but they do that on purpose. Yeah. You know that. I mean, they, they can't take ninety abortion cases. They, then the 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 the, the, well, the gig would be yeah, up. Yeah, no, I. I so I so 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 yeah I think there's some purpose in the sense of of uh, uh, probably some strategic decision making on the court's part to uh, uh, not take negative abortion cases but also it's 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 on purpose in the sense that there's a whole range of of cases that in fact rise to the level of the court and maybe more that should rise to the level sure. of the court. Uh, hearing them that just don't um, uh, trigger these particular partisan polariz- polarizing um, features of how the judges think, right? And so um, uh, there's a tremendous number of, of cases, including some constitutional cases, um, where the judges are going to be more likely to be on the same page sure. um, rather than be sure. um, in opposite corners. So we, I don't think we would want to totally overstate the extent to which the court is polarized all the time on everything. Right. Um, and 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 once you've said that, then it, it opens the door to asking, well, why are they united on all these other things? And I think part of the answer is because of legal considerations, uh, right? They're much more prominent in a lot of these other cases than they tend to be um, uh, in in some, uh, some of these high-profile, more polarizing cases, the abortion cases, for example. So I feel like you and I could talk about this topic forever, like I talk about whether Michael Jordan is better than LeBron James or whether Tiger Woods <laughs> is better than Jack Nicholas. He is. Um, or, 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 or whether Godfather 1 is better than Godfather 2, um, or in, in Posner's words, whether Margarita is better than a cosmopolitan. Um, I right, feel like right. we, which what we're really saying is we prefer one to the other, which is all of con law. Anyway, Keith, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, I've reminded me you for a long time like this, and uh, yeah, especially yeah. today, I think we can both agree it's a new day. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, when people hear this, right. it'll be not a new day anymore, but... Um, I really appreciate you coming on, and, and uh, I could talk to you for hours, but then the audience would go away. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate it. No, my, uh, it was all my pleasure, and thank you so much.